Section 9 of Letters of Pliny by Pliny the Younger, translated by William Melmoth, revised by F. C. T. Bosenkay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Letters 54 to 64. Letter 54 to Marcellinus. I write this to you in the deepest sorrow. The youngest daughter of my friend Fundanus is dead. I have never seen a more cheerful and more lovable girl, or one who better deserved to have enjoyed a long, I had almost said, an immortal life. She was scarcely fourteen, and yet there was in her a wisdom far beyond her years, a matronly gravity united with girlish sweetness and virgin bashfulness. With what an endearing fondness did she hang on her father's neck! How affectionately and modestly she used to greet us, his friends! With what a tender and deferential regard she used to treat her nurses, tutors, teachers, each in their respective offices! What an eager, industrious, intelligent reader she was! She took few amusements, and those with caution. How self-controlled, how patient, how brave she was under her last illness! She complied with all the directions of her physicians. She spoke cheerful, comforting words to her sister and her father and when all her bodily strength was exhausted, the vigour of her mind sustained her. That indeed continued even to her last moments, unbroken by the pain of a long illness, or the terrors of approaching death, and it is a reflection which makes us miss her, and grieve that she has gone from us the more. O oh, melancholy, untimely loss, too truly. She was engaged to an excellent young man. The wedding day was fixed, and we were all invited. How our joy has been turned into sorrow. I cannot express in words the inward pain I felt when I heard Fundanus himself as grief is ever finding out fresh circumstances to aggravate its affliction, ordering the money he had intended laying out upon clothes, pearls, and jewels for her marriage, to be employed in frankincense, ointments, and perfumes for her funeral. He is a man of great learning and good sense, who has applied himself from his earliest youth to the deeper studies and the fine arts, but all the maxims of fortitude which he has received from books, or advanced himself, he now absolutely rejects, and every other virtue of his heart gives place to all a parent's tenderness. You will excuse, you will even approve his grief, when you consider what he has lost. 
he has lost a daughter, who resembled him in his manners, as well as his person, and exactly copied out all her father. So, if you should think proper to write to him upon the subject of so reasonable a grief, let me remind you not to use the rougher arguments of consolation, and such as seem to carry a sort of reproof with them, but those of kind and sympathising humanity. Time will render him more open to the dictates of reason, for as a fresh wound shrinks back from the hand of the surgeon, but by degrees submits to, and even seeks of its own accord the means of its cure, so a mind, under the first impression of a misfortune, shuns and rejects all consolations, but at length desires, and is lulled by their gentle application. Farewell. Letter 55 to Sperina Knowing, as I do, how much you admire the polite arts, and what satisfaction you take in seeing young men of quality pursue the steps of their ancestors, I seize this earliest opportunity of informing you that I went to-day to hear Calpurnius Piso read a beautiful and scholarly production of his, entitled The Sports of Love. His numbers, which were elegiac, were tender, sweet, and flowing, at the same time that they occasionally rose to all the sublimity of diction which the nature of his subject required. He varied his style from the lofty to the simple, from the close to the copious, from the grave to the florid, with equal genius and judgment. These beauties were further recommended by a most harmonious voice, which a very becoming modesty rendered still more pleasing. A confusion and concern in the countenance of a speaker imparts a grace to all he utters, for diffidence I know not how, is infinitely more engaging than assurance and self-sufficiency. I might mention several other circumstances to his advantage, which I am the more inclined to point out, as they are exceedingly striking in one of his age, and are most uncommon in a youth of his quality. But not to enter into a further detail of his merit, I will only add that, when he had finished his poem, I embraced him very heartily, and being persuaded that nothing is a greater encouragement than applause, I exhorted him to go on as he had begun, and to shine out to posterity with the same glorious lustre which was reflected upon him from his ancestors. I congratulated his excellent mother, and particularly his brother, who gained as much honour by the generous affection he manifested upon this occasion, as Calpurnius did by his eloquence. So remarkable a solicitude he showed for him when he began to recite his poem, and so much pleasure in his success. May the gods grant me frequent occasions of giving you accounts of this nature, for I have a partiality to the age in which I live, and should rejoice to find it not barren of merit. 
I ardently wish, therefore, our young men of quality would have something else to show of honourable memorial in their houses than the images of their ancestors. As for those which are placed in the mansion of these excellent youths, I now figure them to myself as silently applauding and encouraging their pursuits, and, what is a sufficient degree of honour to both brothers, as recognising their kindred. Farewell. Letter 56 to Paulinus as I know the humanity with which you treat your own servants, I have less reserve in confessing to you the indulgence I show to mine. I have ever in my mind that line of Homer's, who swayed his people with a father's love, and this expression of ours, father of a family. But were I harsher and harder than I really am by nature, the ill state of health of my freedman Zosimus, has the stronger claim upon my tenderness in that he now stands in more especial need of it, would be sufficient to soften me. He is a good, honest fellow, attentive in his services and well-read, but his chief talent, and indeed his distinguishing qualification, is that of a comedian, in which he highly excels. His pronunciation is distinct, correct in emphasis, pure and graceful. He has a very skilled touch, too, upon the lyre, and performs with better execution than is necessary for one of his profession. To this, I must add, he reads history, oratory, and poetry, as well as if these had been the sole objects of his study. I am the more particular in enumerating his qualifications to let you see how many agreeable services I receive from this one servant alone. He is indeed endeared to me by the ties of a long affection, which are strengthened by the danger he is now in. For nature has so formed our hearts that nothing contributes more to incite and kindle affection than the fear of losing the object of it a fear which I have suffered more than once on his account. Some years ago he strained himself so much by too strong an exertion of his voice that he spit blood, upon which account I sent him into Egypt, from whence, after a long absence, belatedly returned with great benefit to his health. But having again exerted himself for several days together beyond his strength, he was reminded of his former malady by a slight return of his cough and a spitting of blood. For this reason, I intend to send him to your farm at Forum Iulii, having frequently heard you mention it as a healthy air and recommend the milk of that place as very salutary in disorders of this nature. I beg you would give directions to your people to receive him into your house, and to supply him with whatever he may have occasion for, which will not be much, for he is so sparing and abstemious as not only to abstain from delicacies, but even to deny himself the necessaries his ill state of health requires. I shall furnish him towards his journey with what will be sufficient for one of his moderate requirements, who is coming under your roof. Farewell. Letter 57 
to Rufus. I went into the Julian court to hear those lawyers to whom, according to the last adjournment, I was to reply. The judges had taken their seats, the decemviri were arrived, the eyes of the audience were fixed upon the council, and all was hushed silence and expectation, when a messenger arrived from the praetor, and the hundred are at once dismissed, and the case postponed. An accident extremely agreeable to me, who am never so well prepared, but that I am glad of gaining further time. The occasion of the court's rising thus abruptly was a short edict of Nepos, the praetor for criminal causes, in which he directed all persons concerned as plaintiffs or defendants in any cause before him to take notice that he designed strictly to put in force the decree of the senate annexed to his edict, which decree was expressed in the following words, All persons whosoever that have any lawsuits depending are hereby required and commanded, before any proceedings be had thereon, to take an oath that they have not given, promised, or engaged to give any fee or reward to any advocate upon account of his undertaking their cause. In these terms, and many others equally full and express, the lawyers were prohibited to make their professions venal. However, after the case is decided, they are permitted to accept a gratuity of ten thousand sesterces. The praetor for civil causes, being alarmed at this order of Nepos, gave us this unexpected holiday in order to take time to consider whether he should follow the example. Meanwhile, the whole town is talking and either approving or condemning this edict of Nepos. We have got then at last, say the latter with a sneer, a redresser of abuses. But pray, was there never a praetor before this man? Who is he then who sets up in this way for a public reformer? Others, on the contrary, say, he has done perfectly right upon his entry into office. He has paid obedience to the laws, considered the decrees of the Senate, repressed most indecent contracts, and will not suffer the most honourable of all professions to be debased into a sordid lucre traffic. This is what one hears all around one. But which side may prevail, the event will show. It is the usual method of the world, though a very unequitable rule of estimation, to pronounce an action either right or wrong, according as it is attended with good or ill success in consequence of which you may hear the very same conduct attributed to zeal or folly, to liberty or licentiousness, upon different several occasions. Farewell. Letter 58 to Arianus Sometimes I miss Regulus in our courts. I cannot say I deplore his loss. The man, it must be owned, highly respected his profession, grew pale with study and anxiety over it, and used to write out his speeches, though he could not get them by heart. 
there was a practice he had of painting round his right or left eye and wearing a white patch over one side or the other of his forehead according as he was to plead either for the plaintiff or defendant of consulting the soothsayers upon the issue of an action still all this excessive superstition was really due to his extreme earnestness in his profession and it was acceptable enough being concerned in the same cause with him as he always obtained full indulgence in point of time and never failed to get an audience together for what could be more convenient than under the protection of a liberty which you did not ask yourself and all the odium of the arrangement resting with another and before an audience which you had not the trouble of collecting to speak on at your ease and as long as you thought proper nevertheless regulus did well in departing this life though he would have done much better had he made his exit sooner he might really have lived now without any danger to the public in the reign of a prince under whom he would have had no opportunity of doing any harm i need not scruple therefore i think to say i sometimes miss him for since his death the custom has prevailed of not allowing nor indeed of asking more than an hour or two to plead in and sometimes not above half that time the truth is our advocates take more pleasure in finishing a cause than in defending it and our judges had rather rise from the bench than sit upon it such is their indolence and such their indifference to the honour of eloquence and the interest of justice but are we wiser than our ancestors are we more equitable than the laws which grant so many hours and days of adjournments to a case were our forefathers slow of apprehension and dull beyond measure and are we clearer of speech quicker in our conceptions or more scrupulous in our decisions because we get over our causes in fewer hours than they took days o oh, regulus it was by zeal in your profession that you secured an advantage which is but rarely given to the highest integrity as for myself whenever i sit upon the bench which is much oftener than i appear at the bar i always give the advocates as much time as they require for i look upon it as highly presuming to pretend to guess before a case is heard what time it will require and to set limits to an affair before one is acquainted with its extent especially as the first and most sacred duty of a judge is patience which constitutes an important part of justice but this it is objected would give an opening to much superfluous matter i grant it may yet is it not better to hear too much than not to hear enough besides how shall you know that what an advocate has further to offer will be superfluous until you have heard him but this and many other public abuses will be best reserved for a conversation when we meet for i know your affection to the commonwealth inclines you to wish 
that some means might be found out to check at least those grievances which would now be very difficult absolutely to remove but to return to affairs of private concern i hope all goes well in your family mine remains in its usual situation the good which i enjoy grows more acceptable to me by its continuance as habit renders me less sensible of the evils i suffer farewell letter fifty nine to calpurnia never was business more disagreeable to me than when it prevented me not only from accompanying you when you went into campania for your health but from following you there soon after for i want particularly to be with you now that i may learn from my own eyes whether you are growing stronger and stouter and whether the tranquillity the amusements and plenty of that charming country really agree with you were you in perfect health yet i could ill support your absence for even a moment's uncertainty of the welfare of those we tenderly love causes a feeling of suspense and anxiety but now your sickness conspires with your absence to trouble me grievously with vague and various anxieties i dread everything fancy everything and as is natural to those who fear conjure up the very things i most dread let me the more earnestly entreat you then to think of my anxiety and write to me every day and even twice a day i shall be more easy at least while i am reading your letters though when i have read them i shall immediately feel my fears again farewell letter sixty to calpurnia you kindly tell me my absence very sensibly affects you and that your only consolation is in conversing with my works which you frequently substitute in my stead i am glad that you miss me i am glad that you find some rest in these alleviations in return i read over your letters again and again and am continually taking them up as if i had just received them but alas this only stirs in me a keener longing for you for how sweet must her conversation be whose letters have so many charms let me receive them however as often as possible notwithstanding there is still a mixture of pain in the pleasure they afford me farewell letter sixty one to priscus you know attilius crescens and you love him who is there indeed of any rank or worth that does not for myself i profess to have a friendship for him far exceeding ordinary attachments of the world our native towns are separated only by a day's journey and we got to care for each other when we were very young the season for passionate friendships ours improved by years and so far from being chilled it was confirmed by our riper judgments as those who know us best can witness he takes pleasure in boasting everywhere of my friendship as i do to let the world know that his reputation his ease and his interest are my peculiar concern 
insomuch that upon his expressing to me some apprehension of insolent treatment from a certain person who was entering upon the tribuneship of the people, I could not forbear answering, Long as Achilles breathes this vital air, to touch thy head no impious hand shall dare. What is my object in telling you these things? Why, to show you that I look upon every injury offered to Attilius as done to myself. But what is the object of all this? You repeat. You must know, then, Valerius Varus, at his death, owed Attilius a sum of money. Though I am on friendly terms with Maximus, his heir, yet there is a closer friendship between him and you. I beg, therefore, and entreat you by the affection you have for me, to take care that Attilius is not only paid the capital which is due to him, but all the long arrears of interest, too. He neither covets the property of others, nor neglects the care of his own, and as he is not engaged in any lucrative profession, he has nothing to depend upon but his own frugality, for as to literature, in which he greatly distinguishes himself, he pursues this merely from motives of pleasure and ambition. In such a situation the slightest loss presses hard upon a man, and the more so because he has no opportunities of repairing any injury done to his fortune. Remove, then, I entreat you, our uneasiness, and suffer me still to enjoy the pleasure of his wit and bonhomie for i cannot bear to see the cheerfulness of my friend overclouded whose mirth and good-humour dissipates every gloom of melancholy in myself in short you know what a pleasant entertaining fellow he is and i hope you will not suffer any injury to engloom and embitter his disposition you may judge by the warmth of his affection how severe his resentments would prove for a generous and great mind can ill-brook an injury when coupled with contempt. But though he could pass it over, yet cannot I. On the contrary, I shall regard it as a wrong and indignity done to myself, and resent it as one offered to my friend, that is, with double warmth. But, after all, why this air of threatening? rather let me end in the same style in which i began namely by begging entreating you so to act in this affair that neither attilius may have reason to imagine which i am exceedingly anxious he should not that i neglect his interest nor that i may have occasion to charge you with carelessness of mine as undoubtedly i shall not if you have the same regard for the latter as I have for the former. Farewell. Letter 62. To Albinus. I was lately at Alcium, where my mother-in-law has a villa which once belonged to Virginius Rufus. The place renewed in my mind the sorrowful remembrance of that great and excellent man. He was extremely fond of this retirement and used to call it the nest of his old age. Whichever way I looked, I missed him. I felt his absence. I had an inclination to visit his monument. 
but I repented having seen it afterwards, for I found it still unfinished, and this, not from any difficulty residing in the work itself, for it is very plain, or rather indeed slight, but through the neglect of him to whose care it was entrusted. I could not see without a concern, mixed with indignation, the remains of a man whose fame filled the whole world, lie for ten years after his death without an inscription or a name. He had, however, directed that the divine and immortal action of his life should be recorded upon his tomb in the following lines. Here Rufus lies, who Vindex arms withstood, not for himself, but for his country's good. But faithful friends are so rare, and the dead so soon forgotten, that we shall be obliged ourselves to build even our very tombs, and anticipate the office of our heirs. For who is there that has no reason to fear for himself what we see has happened to Virginius, whose eminence and distinction, while rendering such treatment more shameful, so in the same way, make it more notorious. Farewell. Letter 63 to Maximus Oh, what a happy day I lately spent! I was called by the prefect of Rome to assist him in a certain case, and had the pleasure of hearing two excellent young men, Fuscus Salinator and Numidius Quadratus, plead on the opposite sides. Their worth is equal, and each of them will one day, I am persuaded, prove an ornament not only to the present age, but to literature itself. They evinced upon this occasion an admirable probity, supported by inflexible courage. Their dress was decent, their elocution distinct, their tones were manly their memory retentive, their genius elevated, and guided by an equal solidity of judgment. I took infinite pleasure in observing them display these noble qualities, particularly as I had the satisfaction to see that, while they looked upon me as their guide and model, they appeared to the audience as my imitators and rivals. It was a day I cannot but repeat it again, which afforded me the most exquisite happiness, and which I shall ever distinguish with the fairest mark. For what indeed could be either more pleasing to me on the public account than to observe two such noble youths building their fame and glory upon the polite arts, or more desirable upon my own than to be marked out as a worthy example to them in their pursuits of virtue? May the gods still grant me the continuance of that pleasure, and I implore the same gods, you are my witness, to make all these who think me deserving of imitation far better than I am. Farewell. Letter 64 to Romanus You were not present at a very singular occurrence here lately. Neither was I, but the story reached me just after it had happened. Passianus Paulus, a Roman knight, of good family, and a man of peculiar learning and culture besides, composes elegies, 
a talent which runs in the family, for Propertius is reckoned by him amongst his ancestors, as well as being his countryman. He was lately reciting a poem which began thus, Priscus at thy command. Whereupon, Javelinus Priscus, who happened to be present as a particular friend of the poet's, cried out, But he is mistaken, I did not command him. Think what laughter and merriment this occasioned. Priscus's wits, you must know, are reckoned rather unsound, and though he takes a share in public business, is summoned to consultations, and even publicly acts as a lawyer, so that this behaviour of his was the more remarkable and ridiculous. Meanwhile, Paulus was a good deal disconcerted by his friend's absurdity. You see how necessary it is for those who are anxious to recite their works in public to take care that the audience, as well as the author, are perfectly sane. Farewell. End of section 9